it's a little late, but this was on the podium, and I um, think I got put in the podium. The fourth and fifth grade class is going to be staying in today. So uh, fourth and fifth graders are going to be staying in because Pastor Rich is not here. I don't know if we may got a chance to announce that or not. All righty. Let's have a quick word of prayer, and then we will get started. Uh, Father God, always fun and exciting as we get ready to start a new book. We pray, as always, Lord, you would teach and we would listen. Just go before this in all ways and all things, and um, thank you. Thank you for the time here, and, and as always, Lord, we give you just our country, and we pray for your blessing to be upon it. We pray we'd seek you in godly wisdom and direction. We also pray for our men and women serving, Lord, keep them safe, and bring them home safe. In your name we pray, amen. Generally speaking, um, in the years that I've been out here doing the teaching, a lot of times when we do a book that has a first and a second, um, you know, we usually don't do the first one and immediately follow it up with the second one. Just for the fact of a lot of these times these books are so intertwined together, that it feels like you're repeating a lot of the same points. And so you kind of get finished with the book, and so you go right into the next book of it, and you're kind of like, okay, it's kind of like the same thing, but just reworded a different way. So I usually kind of do a break in between. Second Timothy, though, is much different than First Timothy. And I think it's important to kind of see this. First Timothy is a book of theology. It's a book of how you're supposed to run the church, and we've been spending weeks on that as you go through 1 Timothy of what does God want out of the church? How is the church supposed to be run? What is an effective church supposed to look like? It's a great book on that. 2 Timothy is totally different. What you have in 2 Timothy, this is Paul's swan song. It's the last book that Paul wrote. Paul's writing this book from prison. He is writing this book with death being imminent. He's writing this book in the last moments of his life. It's kind of a fascinating look into this as you go through this. You know, generally when we go through a study out here, we try to pick out the key verse of the book. And as we figure out that key verse of the book then, we try to keep going back to that key verse and repeating it. Well, in 2 Timothy, it's tough to find that key verse. Because as you are looking for this key verse, you are really trying to say, okay, how do you sum up this man's life at the end? That's hard to do. Think about that. Think about knowing that your death is imminent. You're now in jail or prison, or in Paul's case, probably a very dark, damp dungeon. You're chained to the wall type of thing. Now imagine this idea that you're, you're writing your final thoughts. But what are your final thoughts? How would you sum that up? If you had to sum up your life and you had to sum up your, your spiritual life and what you wanted to leave to the next generation, what a difficult task set before you. Well, if you will here, look at uh, chapter 4 of 2 Timothy. Chapter 4, because Paul kind of tries to sum it up this way. He says in verse 6, He goes, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. He goes, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I have kept the faith. Finally there is laid up for me this crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, not to have me only, but also all who have loved his appearing. Paul says it's the end. He realizes that. He accepts that. He's, he's on death row, if you will. Now, he's been in prison before been in prison numerous times. You know, we have that great story of him in the book of Acts being in prison and the miraculous escape. In fact, the book of Acts actually ends with Paul being under house arrest, and that's where he wrote some of his other epistles. But this prison sentence is different. This is one where he knows he's not getting out of this. He knows that the Lord is going to use this, and he's going to be martyred. And like I said, it's his swan song. It's his final thoughts. It's his death. And as we go through this book, we see what it's like to face death to face the end as a Christian. Now, the interesting part about this is we went through Ecclesiastes not that long ago, and Ecclesiastes is the whiny book about life and death. Remember Ecclesiastes, the guy was always like, woe is me, my life isn't worth living, what's the point of all this? It's just better just to die. Paul, he's facing death, but he says, no, I'm facing it in victory. Look at this phrasing that he has here in verse 7 in chapter 4. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've kept the faith. You, you almost have this envisionment 
of Paul running that race, seeing the finish line. He's tired. He's exhausted. But yet there's that sense of accomplishment that the race is almost over and he did the best he could and he's finishing that race. Now, Ecclesiastes, you have the person once again whining and moaning about life and how wrong it is and how unfair it is. Here with 2 Timothy, you have victory at the end of the race being completed. So as we go through this book, you see his final moments of his life, but you also see how he has faith and trust in what God is doing. No matter what the situation is, he has faith and trust in that. We will probably say this about a thousand times during their study over these next few weeks. He's in prison while he's writing this. Don't ever forget that. Because as you go through these passages... They're great verses, great words. But when you stop and you look at the context of where he's writing this from, it carries even more weight in all things. So with that being said, let's get into this and see what God has to say. Verse 1 of chapter 1 says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, a beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Now let's stop there for a little bit. Paul's standard greeting you take out that word Paul and just put blank, an apostle of Jesus Christ, etc., by the will of God, we probably would be able to say, yeah, that's Paul. You probably know people like that. You go up and ask them how they're doing. They have the same response every time. It's his little standard greeting. His personality comes out in these books. Even though the Spirit is writing and leading, his personality comes out as he goes through this. So let's break this down for a second because this is so vital. He's an apostle. Apostle means one who has been sent. So he has been sent by God. Why? By the will of God, according to the promise that is in Christ Jesus. How many times do we say this out here? People spend their whole life figuring out what God's will is for me. What is God's plan? God's plan is so simple. You're here to worship and you're here to witness. How simple is that? And whatever state you're in, whatever place you're in in life, God says, I want you to spend time worshiping me and I want you to spend time being a light and a witness for me. Paul knows what his will is, what God's will is for his life. He's an apostle by the will of God to talk about the promise of Christ and then jump down to verse 11, if you will. Paul even simplifies it further. To which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. How many times do we spend so much time in life trying to figure out what our purpose is? People reach a milestone birthday and they look back on their life and what have I accomplished? What have I done? What is my reason for being here? I feel like I'm just going through the motions. And we try to find these deep spiritual truths of why am I here? You know why you're here? If you're, if you're, you're married, you're here to be the best spouse you can be. If you have kids, you're here to be the best parent you can be. If you have grandkids, be the best grandparent you can be. If you don't have kids, be the best friend you can be. It's simple. Paul is not being complex here. He goes, I'm an apostle by the will of God, verse 11, and I'm here to be a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. How simple is that? So often we overcomplicate the simplicity of life. Whatever state you're in, do the best what you can in that state for the Lord. It's that simple. Paul knew what he was called to do. He knew what God's will was for his life. So since he knew that, he could live it out. He didn't have to sit here wondering. He knew what the Lord wanted. Now, jump ahead a little bit. Look at who's writing this to. Verse 2, to Timothy. Timothy, a beloved son. Timothy is kind of an interesting guy. Timothy is a very key part in the New Testament, but yet you don't really know a lot about him. In the sense of Timothy himself, his words... Paul obviously wrote 1 Timothy to him. Paul wrote 2 Timothy to him. He has mentioned numerous times to the rest of Paul's epistles, and he plays kind of a central role in the book of Acts. But you don't know a lot about him. In fact, I don't even know if there's a recorded word of Timothy in the entire Bible. But we can piece together a little bit of background here about Timothy. First thing we know about Timothy is his father was a Greek. Now, that means a lot, because it means that he was not of a, a Jewish man, was not his father. And we're dealing here a lot with the New Testament idea of Jews. And number two, generally speaking in the Bible, when a man is referred to as a Greek, it's really not a compliment. We can probably piece together that Timothy's dad was really not a believer. 
It's quite possible that Timothy's dad was not a believer at all. But we know about Timothy's faith, because jump ahead, if you will, to verse 5. When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, I am persuaded is in you also. Now, isn't that neat? How did Timothy come to know the Lord? Through his mom and through his grandma. His dad doesn't look like he was the believer that he was supposed to be, but his mom and his grandma were instrumental in leading him into his relationship with Christ. Now think about that for a little bit, parents or grandparents. You have such a key role in the progression of your grandkids or your children's faith. How important is that? That's vital. You may have grown up in a household where either your father or your mother was not the godly man or woman that he or she needed to be. That doesn't mean that you don't have the same opportunities to come to know Christ as anybody else. You just need one person in your life that's willing to plant those seeds and let the Spirit grow. Too often we use excuses. I hear this a lot. Whereby I never really grew up in church. I never really came out of a believing family. Yeah, but you're an adult now and you can make that decision to go or not go. So, Timothy's life doesn't look like he had that strong parental father spiritual figure. How many of you can relate to that? Your dad was not the man of God you wanted him to be. But you know what? He had a mom and a grandma that was willing to plant seeds into his life, and that fruit came out of it. Right now, parents, you may not be where you're supposed to be as a parent, but isn't it neat to know you can still plant seeds into your kids and watch them grow? And even more than that, jump ahead, if you will, to 2 Timothy 3, because there's some neat parts that come out of this. We get another hint into his life here as a kid. 2 Timothy 3. Look at uh, verse 14. 2 Timothy 3.14 says, But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. What was instrumental in Timothy's faith as a young man? His mother, his grandmother, and they ingrained God's Word into him. That is vital. One of the things I, I just love and just so impressed with, the, with my wife is she does such a great job of just ingraining God's word into the kids. The Bible says that his word will not return void. It won't. We do this program out here on Wednesday nights that some of you may not be familiar with. It's called CBC. And CBC is a program that the kids do in the back on Wednesdays, and it's basically just straight Bible memorization. Now, isn't that wonderful? How simple of a concept is that? Let's just teach the kids God's word. And when you teach them God's word, the Bible says that grows in them, and next thing you know, it makes their faith grow. Prayer is vital. Evangelism is vital. Worship is vital. Service is vital. But there's only one thing in the Bible that says makes your heart burn for the Lord, and that's God's word. There's only one thing in the Bible that says as you study it and grow in it, your faith grows, and that's God's word. And I know you guys know that, because what do we hit out here all the time? Be in the word. Be in the word. And you know... If that's the only thing you take out of this today, it's, I know, James said for the hundredth time again, be in the Word. I'm happy with that. Because you know why? I'm not the one constantly saying be in the Word. Paul is constantly saying be in the Word. Just go through a quick whirlwind with me here. 2 Timothy 2, look at verse 15. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth. Look at 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Jump ahead to 2 Timothy 4, verse 2. Preach the Word. Now, if the only thing you think is, I'm just going to say, hit the Word, I like I said, I'm okay with that. Because you know what? I'm willing to bet, back during Paul's time, 2,000 years ago, Timothy gets this letter from Paul. He goes to his spiritual group of people in his churches and says, hey, guess what, guys? we got another letter from Paul. You know what? There was probably some person in that congregation that said, I know what Paul's going to say. He's going to say, be in the Word, be in the Word. Don't you think Timothy probably knew that, what Paul was going to say, be in the Word? That's why. That's where the power is at. Too often we spend so much time in our Christian walk away from those things that are really going to grow us and take us deeper in the Lord. Being in the Word is what's going to make you grow in your walk and relationship with the Lord. There's no way around that. 
Paul presses this, emphasizes this. In his final letter, what does he keep telling people? Be in the Word. And that is what is going to make you grow. If you're feeling dry in your walk, if you feel a little empty, I would simply ask yourself, are you in the Word? Because by being in the Word, it grows that fire within you. And maybe you're like, well, I don't know what I'm supposed to study. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Great. Next Sunday starts discipleship class, 8.45 in the morning. encourage you to get involved with that. You will learn about growing and being in the Word and what does it mean as you grow as a Christian. So with Timothy, we see his background. He obviously came from, it looks like, a non-believing dad, quite possibly. But he had a very spiritual mother and grandmother in his life that ingrained the Scriptures into him as a kid. And that is just hopefully is an encouragement to you out there, moms, dads, and grandparents. You have such a role in your kid's life to really impact them with God's Word and the Scriptures. What an important role we have, and we know that it will not return void. So that's the background here of Paul, his calling, and he's writing to Timothy. Now we get to Paul's famous little phrase. Look at verse 2. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. We have a tendency to skip over that. But anytime we start one of Paul's letters, we always like to hit this, grace, mercy, and peace. Do you realize everything you need to know about salvation is just in that little phrase? Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Grace. Grace is getting something you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting something you do deserve. So we don't deserve heaven. We get heaven through Christ. We have grace. Mercy. We deserve hell because we're sinners. We don't get hell because of Christ, his death and resurrection. So grace and mercy... Brings what? Peace. Now here's the problem. People living in this world today want peace. They don't want the grace and mercy. So what they try to do is they try to find peace on their own. They go out and live the life without the Lord. I'm telling you right now, you can't have peace without grace and mercy. You can't. And so if you want peace in your life, you want peace in your marriage, you want peace in your household, peace just in the world, and I don't mean in the world peace, I'm saying for you personally in the world, you've got to have the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. If you don't have the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ, you will not have peace. People come up to me and say something to the fact of, I'm not happy where my life is at. I'm not happy with what's going on. I don't have peace in my life. Well, how are you doing spiritually? Not good. If the grace and mercy aren't in order, how are you supposed to have peace in order? People come up and their household's a mess. They want peace in their house, but yet they don't want to do it according to the grace and mercy of Christ. They want peace their own way. Unless you're willing to follow the rules of what Christ says and what God says, you're not going to have peace. It's a simple program. Grace plus mercy equals peace given to you by God the Father and Jesus Christ. It's so simple, but that is what we struggle with in this world, trying to find peace. God says it comes through the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Jump ahead, verse 3. It says, I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience, as my forefathers did, as without ceasing I remember you in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears that I made filled with joy. When I call to remember, it's the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. I'm also persuaded is in you also. Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power and of love and a sound mind. Look at verse 3. Without ceasing, I remember you in my prayers night and day. Now, quick reminder, where's Paul writing this from? Prison. Now, I love you guys. I love you guys with all my heart. And I would do almost anything from you, but I'm being quite honest with you. If I was stuck in the middle of a dungeon, chained up in prison, I don't know if I could say verse 3. <laughs> Without ceasing, I remember you in my prayers night and day. I'd be like, no, I'm, I'm praying for myself a lot right now. Because, I mean, if I was in Paul's spot, I'd be thinking, okay, you got Peter out. You've gotten me out at least twice. Paul says, adding my own thoughts, personal opinion, be careful. I got nothing else to do. It's not like he had a really full day going on there, being in prison. He had time. So what does he do at that time? Without ceasing, I remember you in my prayers night and day. 
But God, help us to be that type of congregation, that we pray for people. We pray for people. You know, one of the things is, as, as the church grows and there's more people coming and we don't know everybody, we don't know all the situations, one of the greatest ways to feel a connection to people is when you pray for them. You may never meet them. And so there are certain times where I've never met somebody, but I get the updates and the prayer requests. And by praying for them, there is a, a connection there because you are laying their requests down at the feet of God. Paul was praying night and day for these people. He cared without ceasing. I, I wish as individuals and as a body we were more of a people of prayer. This is not some type of legalism. We're not some try to whip us into prayer. But Lord, just help us to realize the vital importance of prayer and that it is worth letting go of something during the day to have more time to pray. I, I firmly realize that more is accomplished in prayer than what I can ever imagine. Yeah, I can call, I can write, I can text, I can email, I can do all that stuff. But by really stopping and praying for somebody, Man, that's where you really make a difference in your lives, in your marriages, in your co-workers, and, and everything is by constantly giving it over to the Lord. And Paul said, without ceasing, I remember you in my prayers night and day. Lord, help us to do that. Now, look at verse 4. Greatly desiring to see you. Why does he want to see him? Because they were worked up about him. Mindful of your tears. That's another thing that as a body, help us, Lord. There's a great verse where it says, we weep with those who weep and we rejoice with those who rejoice. You know, why do we spend time on Wednesdays before the lesson of doing the time of prayer requests? It's because it's a time for us as a body to see we can be joyful when someone's joyful, but yet when they're hurting, our heart also breaks for them. This church that he's writing to, to Timothy, he's writing to and the people with Timothy, they, they were in tears over Paul's situation in life. Their heart broke by what Paul is going through. And Paul says, I'm writing to you, though, to be mindful of your tears, but also that we may be on joy together. See, that's the whole goal. If you're hurting, I hurt with you because I care because it's important to you. If you're happy, I want to be happy with you and joyful. That's part of being the body. That's why we share those prayer requests and praises, because there's times of tears, and there's also times of joy, where we can stop and say, okay, Lord, we're together here as one. Too often you see in the church this independent flair. Well, I don't really need to ask for prayer. I'll just take care of it on my own. No, you need prayer. You need the body. Or you know what? I'm going through a tough time. I'll, I'll just take care of it on my own. No, you need the body. No, I don't need them. God says you do. <laughs> If God says you do, that means you do. And so what happens here with Paul, Paul says, you're hurting because I'm hurting, but I want you to be joyful, and I want us to be joyful together. And so what does Paul want him to do? Verse 6, stir up. That's an interesting phrase, stir up. Generally, when we think of stir up, it's not a good thing, getting stirred up. We had some people come over uh, recently to the house, and so I sat down with three older boys, and I was giving them their marching orders. I told Elias, I told him, I said, don't try to be the boss. Okay, so you're the firstborn, but don't act like it. So just listen and obey. Went to Kenan, number three. Said, Kenan, work on no whining, no fussing tonight. Whatever daddy or mommy says, just go ahead and do it and obey. And I went up to Judah, who's number two. And I've told you before, Judah likes to get crazy. He goes into crazy Judah mode and Judah world. I said, Judah, don't go crazy. Just, just try to stay halfway normal here tonight. Because why? When the boys get worked up, what do we say? Verse six, you're getting everybody stirred up. Usually has a negative connotation. We'll walk into the living room and there's all the guys, all the boys are laying on top of each other, getting each other stirred up. Well, here, this is stirred up in a good way. It means one of two things. It either means to start a fire from scratch or it means to take a fire that is dwindling and to keep it going. That's what it literally means in the Greek is to stir up. So what Paul is saying is, hey, if you don't know your gift of God which is in you, I want to stir that gift up. I want you to find that gift. I want to start a fire that wasn't even burning yet. Number two, you had a gift, but I see your fire starting to dwindle a little bit. Well, I want to stir that up to make sure that that fire is burning as bright as possibly can be. That's what that phrase is staying there. Start the fire 
or help the fire get brighter and stronger in the Lord. Now, going back to everything we talked about before, verse 3, praying for everybody. Verse 4, um, weeping with those who weep, rejoicing with those who rejoicing. That's part of the stirring up process. Too often what we do as a church is we come in, we sit in our same spot, we do our same thing, and then we leave. We don't stop and think of, hey, I haven't seen so-and-so in a while. Hope they're doing okay. Or you know what? There's somebody new over there. I'm sure somebody else will go talk to them. Well, Paul says, stir this up. If there's somebody that's heavy on your heart, and you see them going backwards instead of forwards in their walk with the Lord, Paul says, why don't you go stir them up a little bit in a good way. Now, this doesn't mean it's your responsibility to see unsaved people get saved. It doesn't mean it's your responsibility to make people go deeper in the Lord. It's your responsibility to go see what you can do to help stir up the gift of God which is in them. Go plant seeds to encourage them, to help them. Why don't we do that? We don't do it because, well, I don't really know them real well. I don't feel comfortable doing it. We have excuses, you know. I don't know what I would say or who am I to butt in? I'm not perfect in my life. i got areas I'm struggling with. Who am I to go over and talk to them about that? That's the Holy Spirit's job. Oh, the Holy Spirit is leading you. And you can be an instrument of God to go and be used by that. And what a beautiful blessing it is. I am thankful, so thankful for the people that have come into my life that have stirred me up. And I'm thankful for the times I've had the opportunity to go help stir somebody else up. That's what we do as a body of Christ. We encourage one another. We help one another. That is what we're here to do. So if you know somebody where the fire is dwindling, help stir them up. If you know somebody where there's no fire at all, go over there and plant some seeds. That's what we're supposed to do. Maybe you're in a spot right now spiritually where you need a little bit of stirring up. Hey, time to get involved with some stuff. Get involved once again with that discipleship. See what can happen there to keep that fire burning strong. Because what happens is the fire starts to go out. We just let it fade. No. We want to be on fire for the Lord, as big and bright as we possibly can, through the Lord and His Spirit. Now, verse 7, I think, is interesting. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. Why would Paul say that? Because I think they're scared. This is Paul. Paul is a spiritual father figure to many of them. The death is coming. That's a scary place to be. And so therefore, there's fear. And Paul says, wait a second, there's no fear. Yes, I'm in jail, I'm in prison, my death is imminent, but there is no fear. There is no fear in what we're going through. Because why is there no fear? Because I know that why? Because God has given us a spirit of power and of love and a sound mind. Now think about that. When you have your mind and heart where it's supposed to be, Fear goes out the window. Power. That word power is referring to the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul uses this writing, that word, in all of his writings except for one book because he's always stressing the importance of the power of the Holy Spirit. When you have the power of the Holy Spirit, you have nothing to be afraid of. Next one, love. What does it say in 1 John? Perfect love casts out fear. Now, if you trust that God loves you and that you love God, what do you have to be afraid of? Perfect love casts out fear. You trust that God loves you, so therefore if he loves you, he's not going to allow something to come into your life that's going to be a problem. So therefore, that love casts out fear, and you love the Lord, so you're going to be walking in his will, which leads us to the last point, a sound mind. Some of your translations may say self-control or self-discipline, because your mind is focused on the Lord, so therefore you don't allow the fear to come in. And this is where we have to stop and really take a look at this and see. The Bible says we need to take every thought captive. How do we get to the place of fear? Well, let's work backwards. So usually the reason fear gets in is because your mind isn't sound. You've got a crack in your mind. And so what happens is you've got that crack, and so thoughts come in there that shouldn't come in. Well, what am I going to do about this? What about this coming up? How am I going to take care of that? Well, why did she say this? Why did he do that? What's going to happen? So all these thoughts come into your mind because your mind's not sound. Well, then what happens is when your mind is focusing on these things, you're not focusing on the love of the Lord. So since you're not focusing on the love of the Lord, you can't say perfect love casts out fear. Because 
You're not focusing on God's intimate love for you, and so therefore you're focusing on the situation. Well, if you're not focusing on the love of God because you have allowed things to come into your mind, well, then you're not resting in the power of God. So when you're not resting in the power of God, what's the result of this? Fear. That's the way it works. We allow our mind to get off the Lord. When our mind's off the Lord, we're not focusing on His love for us, that He cares for us. And therefore, since we're not focusing on His love for us, we're not resting in the power of the Spirit. And if we're not resting in the power of the Spirit, we live in fear. That's what happens. So that's why anytime someone comes and living in fear, one of the first things we try to tell them is, get your mind back on the Lord. In Ephesians 6, it talks about the uh, armor of God. And the Bible says He's given us the helmet of salvation. Now think about that. If your mind is always on the Savior, your mind's not on the situation. We use that phrase out here all the time. Keep your eyes on the Savior and not on the situation. If your eyes are on the situation, your mind will not be sound. Since your mind's not sound, you're not focusing on the love of the Lord. Therefore, you're not focusing on the power of God. And you're going to be living your life in fear. When fear gets the best of you, it's hard to live the Christian life. Fear and faith are complete opposites. If you have fear, you don't have faith. But when you have faith, you don't have to fear anything because you have faith that God's in control and taking care of it. So when Paul writes to them, he says, hey, don't rest in fear. Realize the power of God. Realize the love of God. And realize the sound mind you have that he is in there taking care of the situation. And I'm willing to bet for all of you here today that are fearful of things, are worry warts, you get yourself all worked up and anxious. What is the trigger to all this? You can't shut your mind down. How many times have I said this? Do you have to reach a point where you can't think so much? You've got to give it over to the Lord. Because once you give it over to the Lord, you trust that He is going to take care of it. When you try to keep it on your own, man, that leads to problems. Let's move on here, verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, a teacher of the Gentiles. For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and persuaded that he is able to keep what I've committed to him till the day. This word is interesting, ashamed. Verse 8, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony. Jump ahead to verse 12. Therefore, for this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed. Have you ever been ashamed of God? Have you ever been ashamed to, to, to admit what he can do? I mean, I've heard people say this before. You know, I really wanted to pray for that person, and in faith, I really wanted to pray that the Lord would deliver them and, and take care of them, and it would be okay. But what happens if God doesn't do it? Well, I, so I didn't pray it. Or, you know, I wanted to go over that person at work who was really struggling, and I wouldn't want to put my hand on their shoulder and just look them in the eye and say, you know what, God will get you through this. I trust that. But then I thought, well, what happens if he doesn't? We become ashamed of the Lord and, and, and really saying, I don't know. Paul says, wait a second. From the world's perspective, this doesn't look good. I, I'm in jail, I'm in prison. I'm in chains. I'm getting ready to die. He goes, don't be ashamed of this. God is working in this, and he will work through it. And I'm telling you, whatever scenario or situation you are in life, you cannot be ashamed of the place you're in because you have to stop and say, okay, Lord, according to the world, it looks like my world's falling apart, but I'm not ashamed of you knowing that you're working in this situation. Sometimes your greatest opportunities for testimony and witnessing is when you feel like the world is falling apart around you because your eyes are on the Savior, not the situation. So therefore, Paul says right here, it's my testimony, verse 8. It's my testimony. And it's the testimony of the gospel according to the power of God. He says, I am going to, through this situation, let the gospel and the power of God come out. That's amazing. Too often when we go through difficult times, we 
are ashamed that we may lose our witness and, and, and we're not strong enough or whatever. God says, don't be that way. Trust that I am working, and if I'm working, it's going to work out. Look at verse 9. Who have saved us, he has called us to holy calling. Isn't that a beautiful, simplistic thing? God saves you, then once God saves you, he calls you into something. Now, we already know where Paul was called. He was called to be an apostle, a teacher, and a preacher. Where has God called you? One of the phrases that we've been using when we well, actually just finished up 2 Corinthians here is that sphere of influence. Where has God called you, and where is your influence? Where is your ministry where he has called you to go serve? And look at verse 9. Not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. How many times do we pick our calling based on what we want to do and what we feel our purpose is? You know, we realize that God's on the throne, he's in control, but we kind of look at it as a stockholder thing. Okay, God, I'll give you 51%, but I'm keeping 49% for myself. And Lord, I feel I am called to go do this. Lord, this is what I want to do. This is my purpose. This is my calling. Bless it. God says, no. It's my calling. It's my purpose. And you have to trust that God is going to place you and put you where he wants you to be most effective for the use of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right now in Paul's life, his calling and purpose was what? Jail. Prison. Now that's not an easy thing to think about or an easy thing to look at. But that's where God said, I'm putting you here, Paul, for a reason and a purpose. And Paul said, I accept that. Because I'm not ashamed of that. That God's calling and purpose has put me in this jail, this prison right now. My death is imminent and I'm going to use this for the gospel of the Lord. How many times do we buck where God puts us? God's called us to a place. He's given us a purpose. We say, no, no, I don't want to do that. I don't want to work at that family situation, that marriage situation, that co-worker, that life situation. So therefore, that's where God's put me. That's the calling. That's his purpose. I don't want it. No. Paul says you can't do that. And he's just not saying these words. He's living these words because he's living them in prison, waiting his death. He says you have to trust where God has put us and where he's called us. Why? Because is he really going to die? Look at verse 10. But it has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ who has abolished death and brought life and mortality to light through the gospel. Paul says I'm not going to die. Wait a second, you're going to die? Yeah, but I'm not going to die. He came out in Philippians and says for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Because if they take my life... I get to go on. Think about that. We have this fear of death, this fear of, well, what about this? Look at verse 10. Christ has abolished death. Do you know what that means? It's gone. We have life and immortality through the gospel. I almost envision Paul sitting here saying, you're going to kill me? You really think you're going to kill me? No, I'm just going home to heaven. You can behead me. You can do whatever you want. I'm just going home to heaven. And we have to keep that mindset. Reminds me of that passage in Corinthians where, where Paul wrote, Oh, death, where is your sting? You know, it's the classic example of the honeybee. Once the bee stings you, it can't do anything else. It stung you. It can't sting you anymore. It's done. Same thing with death. The Bible says Christ took the sting of death away from the cross. Death can't sting you. It's already stung Christ. You could do it one time, and it did to Christ, and Christ said, I defeated it. So Paul, from the middle of this I envision... This damp, dark prison chains is writing this letter saying, death is abolished, life and immortality through the gospel. He says, don't be afraid, don't be fearful. This is a purpose. God is using this. And he says, learn from me. That is a witness. That's a powerful witness. God help us to have that same mindset that whatever state or situation we are in, we realize the big picture of what God is doing. Paul realized that. Once again, if I was the writer of this passage, 
It'd be four chapters of, what are you doing to get me out? Are you guys praying? Who's not fasting enough? That would be my letter. My letter would say nothing of, oh, don't be ashamed. I'd be saying, be ashamed. Do something about this. Paul sees the big picture. Look at verse 12. For this reason, I also suffer. Now, that's a dirty word in Christianity, isn't it? Because if you really love Jesus, you're not going to suffer. No. Paul says, I suffer. He's suffering. You know, Paul's not sitting out on some beach, listening to the Spirit speak to him with a drink in his hand and an umbrella, just, just writing down this letter to Timothy. No. He's suffering. And as he's suffering, he's writing this. I think a lot of times what we do as Christians is we run from suffering. For God says suffering is a part of your walk and relationship with Christ. And we just talked about this on a Wednesday night, not too long ago, and I encourage you to get it. It's a few messages ago. Because what happens is we look at this idea of suffering, and we start saying, well, if I'm suffering, I must be doing something wrong. And if I'm doing something wrong, oh, then I wouldn't be going through this if I was living my life right. Paul writes a little later in 2 Timothy 3, you don't need to turn there, he goes, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. One more time, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Do you not realize that means all? <laughs> it's going to happen. Perfect love casts out fear. When the suffering comes, God still loves you. Don't live in fear of it. The Bible says, let yourself have a sound mind. Don't focus on the situation. Focus on the Savior. Don't resort to the whiny, mopey Ecclesiastes of woe is me. My life isn't worth living. Yeah, it's suffering. It hurts. But God says there's a divine plan and purpose in it. Do not be ashamed of it. And through this suffering, my light can and will shine the gospel. And Paul says, I'm not going to worry about this. Why? Look at verse 12. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Paul says, I'm not going to worry about this because it's in God's hands. Now, isn't that just a simplistic thing? It's in God's hands. Paul can't get out of prison and go one more time to Galatia or to Corinth or Ephesus and say, okay, guys, I just got a couple more things I need to tell you. I just wanted to see you one more time. His death is coming. He does not have freedom. He says, I have to trust that I've committed these things over to the Lord, so therefore if I've committed them over to the Lord, I have to trust that God is moving and working in them. Isn't it a freeing thing to know it doesn't fall on your shoulders? It's tough. I, I've shared this before, and I've shared this a lot, and I don't mean to be repetitious, but there's a lot of times that I used to throw this burden on my shoulders. Someone would call me up going through a difficult time. They'd want to sit down and meet for counseling. It's like, what am I going to tell them? Their marriage is falling apart, and it's my responsibility to fix this marriage. They don't want to live anymore. It's my responsibility to give them a reason to live. Their, their family is falling apart. It's my responsibility to. Or I have to lead this person to Christ. I don't have to do any of that. I have to do verse 12. I have to commit it over to the Lord. Just be available. To stir up the fire if need be. Paul, sitting here, realizes, I think personally, how helpless he is in the flesh. And then he realizes it's the power of prayer that's going to accomplish things. God help us to really realize the power of prayer. More is accomplished in prayer than what we can ever imagine. Paul sitting here from this deep, dark, damp dungeon has this idea of prayer and reminding them of power that God has to not let fear get the best of them. And when you have that mindset, when you see what the Lord can do, you realize that every scenario is an opportunity for the gospel to be spread. Think about that. Every scenario you face is an opportunity for the gospel to be spread. You go into work today or tomorrow, and it's the worst day you've ever had. 
It's an opportunity for you to not resort to the flesh and people to see the change in your life. You go home today and the spouse is in a bad mood. It's an opportunity for you to not respond in the flesh to say, I'm not going to allow this to get to me. Every scenario is an opportunity for the Lord to move and work. Paul realizes that. Goes back once again to uh, verse 9 here. According to his own purpose. Do you trust God? Do you trust God that what you have committed to the Lord will take care of? Do you trust God that he has a purpose for your life? Do you trust God that if you live your life in sound mind, love, and power, that you don't have to walk in fear? Do you trust God that you don't have to be ashamed of whatever situation you're facing in life because the power of God is there to get you through it? How much time in our life have we spent in worry, fear, and anxiety? We really should just give it over to the Lord and allow him to work at it. Boy, remind us of that, God. Lord, help us to do that. As we continue to go through First uh, Tim, excuse me, Second Timothy here, like I said, it's a great book. You see the honesty of what Paul's going through. In fact, next week when we get into our next lesson here, there's a lot of names written in this book. Some names are good, some names are bad. Paul, at the end of his life, is kind of going back through the people that have blessed him, helped him, and the people that have also caused problems. And next week we're going to get into that type of message, that mindset of the relationships we have with people and realizing are they the blessings that we're trying to be helpful to them or is it the type of relationships that are causing problems? And we're going to get into that here in the next couple of weeks. I really hope you are blessed by this lesson, and I hope you're blessed by this book, because this book is not a book of despair. It's not a book of discouragement. It's not a book of fear. This is actually a book of victory. As this man is looking death in the face, he says, I trust God. No matter what I'm facing, I trust God. And he wants to encourage Timothy and the believers with Timothy to say, can you do the same thing? And I hope you can do that too. Some of you may come in today and you may have been in a very difficult situation in life. Very difficult. God's there in the midst of the storm. Keep your eyes on the Savior, not on the situation, and the Lord will help you through it. And I encourage you, pray for your brothers and sisters in the Lord. Help stir that fire up in any way that you possibly can. And trust that the Lord is moving and working in ways that we never see and we don't. Mark, if you're going to come forward here for the final song.